and I had big black glasses, the kind that's really in again right now. Uh, so if you wait long enough, everything that goes out comes back in. And uh, I was sitting on the front row. I was the Sunday school superintendent of our church. I was 18. I was, the, I, I, I was leading the largest Sunday school attendance in the history of our church down there. Never, never any, any, any larger. And, and when, when Pastor Merrill and Mrs. Merrill came with a group called the Challengers from uh, our college, I had all of our Sunday school right here on the front. I was, I mean, I had them all up there. It was phenomenal. Uh, I, I really kind of felt like, uh, I, I kind of felt like uh, Johnny Cash had showed up when Pastor Merrill came because, you know, he had black hair, big wavy black hair, and oh, it was just amazing. So he didn't wear black, I don't think, I can't remember, but it was a great moment. 46 years ago this summer. And uh, at that time, I had already been serving the Lord over six years, received the call of God on the very night that I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was 12, and had scholarships to go to either Iowa State University or University of Iowa, but I had a call of God in my life. And my wife's husband, I mean, my wife's father, I should say, I'm her husband, uh, my, my wife's father uh, said to me, he said, I know you, you've got the call of God in your life, and I know that you, you, uh, you've got these scholarships, but I, I, I've, I've met some folks from a very small little Bible college in Chicago. And he said, I really think you ought to look at going there. And uh, I, I had such trust if, uh, in my pastor. I trusted his integrity, trusted his walk in the Lord that I set aside those scholarships and came to uh, attend this college that I now uh, continue to serve as president of. And, and no regrets, no looking back, no second thoughts, never have had any, any uh, hesitation about it whatsoever, whatsoever. I just know that Iowa State and University of Iowa missed a great opportunity by not having me there. But that's all right. That's okay. And uh, then I want to thank Pastor Merrill because uh, 30 years ago, this uh, May, I came on full-time staff here at Christian Life Ministries. I had, I had participated for six years prior to that, from 1977 to 1983. I drove up part-time teaching at our college while I was planting a, a, a robust church congregation about 70 miles south of here. So the majority of my life, the majority of my life, I'm a young 63, and the majority of my life I've been attached to this ministry. And uh, it has just been a joy. And what a great joy it is right now to, to serve the, the leadership that God has with us, with Pastor Darrell and, and his lovely wife, Leslie. Wow, what a great team. Would you just uh, applaud their ministry? I think they do a great job. They really, 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 really do. So um, it's, it's just a, a joy to be here uh, this evening. I had the opportunity last week to be in uh, Orlando. I put about, this year I'll be putting about 75,000 air miles on, on, on uh, one airline, just on one airline alone. And um, so I was in an airport terminal in Orlando this week, and somebody was there in the terminal handing out this uh, tract. And it was, it was one of the most ingenious, delightful approaches to the gospel that I've seen lately. On one side, there's 31 smiles, 31 one-liners, that kind of get you drawn in, very unoffensive. Hope as I share some of them, none of you are offended. But then on the, on the back side is on a more serious note, there's an illustration about a driver, uh, a convict, and a skydiver, and these little anecdotal stories just bring you into the fact that you, if you would like, you can accept Christ as your Savior. But here's a, here's a couple of the one-liners. I just think they're great. Consciousness, that annoying time between naps. Um, number six, I let my mind wander, but it never came back. Um, number 11, Insanity is hereditary. You get it from your children. <laughs> ah, here's, here's a, a, a question. Number 12. If a turtle doesn't have a shell, is he naked or homeless? <laughs> I like him. Number 19. When I told my wife to pull the plug, if I was ever in a vegetative state, she unplugged the TV. Uh -huh. <laughs> Not bad, huh? 
Number 21, many of us can relate to this. I started out with nothing and I still have most of it. Uh, <laughs> uh, number 25, if at first you don't succeed, don't try skydiving. And uh, I guess I should like number 30. I'm in shape. Round is a shape. Number 31, a clear conscience is usually a sign of a bad memory. Wow. <laughs> Our lesson for living tonight comes out of the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and 10 are two great chapters of the New Testament and great, two great chapters of the book of Luke. They really chronicle what Jesus Christ is seeing accomplished in the calling of his disciples. And I understand that right now we're in a, a discipleship series called Activate. And I believe Pastor Darrell last week spoke about the power of learning as a disciple. Well, th this evening I'd like to talk a little bit about this whole discipleship concept as well. I'd like to talk about it from the perspective of an individual who's been a part of this ministry for 30 years. And by God's grace, if I behave myself and continue to serve the Lord, uh, I hope to be able to be a part of this ministry until I'm ushered home to be with the Lord. And at that time, probably, Luke will be performing my funeral service. I don't know, uh, because I intend to live a very long time, right? Absolutely. Until I can't remember who I am and where I'm at. That's all right. Well, I really believe Luke 9 kind of mirrors kind of our own moment here at our congregation. Because again, I've, I've had the great opportunity of being a part of this ministry for 30 years, and I've seen what I would call wave after wave after wave of the movements of God come in over this ministry. Wave, just, just like if you're on Lake, lake Shore and, and these huge 10-foot waves that came in this last week, wave after wave after wave. I, I've seen wave after wave of spiritual momentum and movement coming across the ministry here called Christian Life. And I really believe with all of my soul and my prayer time and where I feel and what I sense, I feel that we're on the cusp of another major wave coming across this ministry. Wow, so much so, I want to take surfing lessons again. I don't want to do it. Well, I believe this is what we find in Luke chapter 9. We're going to begin with verse 1 and 2 and then jump real quickly down to verse number 9. And Jesus called the 12, Luke 9, 1 and 2. He called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all the demons to heal all diseases. And he sent them out to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Verse 6. And departing, they began going about the villages, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. You start with this dramatic picture of Jesus calling 12 disciples. You know, that's why you and I are here. A disciple is a follower of Christ. A disciple is one like Peter or Matthew or one of the other names at that time when Jesus said, follow me, and they followed him. Well, when I was 12, I heard him say to me at a little old piano bench and an upright piano in a little dinky one-car garage in Iowa that was at the church at the time, follow me. And at the age of 12, in, in May of 1962, I began following that voice. You're here because you're a follower. You're here because you're a disciple. And Jesus gives this congregation and all of you and I the authority to preach the kingdom, to preach the kingdom. Hallelujah. That's our calling. Well, Luke 9 begins with this dramatic calling and he calls these, these men and they become disciples and he gives them anointing, he gives them authority. And the Bible says they go everywhere preaching and my healing the sick, casting out devils, and it is phenomenal. And then as you continue to move through the course of chapter 9, not only do these men get to heal the sick, and not only do they get to see people, people's lives changed, they get to have the opportunity to participate in one of the largest picnics on history. 
Tomorrow's picnic is going to be nothing compared to the picnic of the feeding of the 5,000 that the disciples participated in. And Jesus invited them to give those hungry people what they had. That's all you and I have ever been asked by Jesus to do, is to provide people what we have. And what do we have? We have the bread of life, don't we? We have the power of Jesus Christ. So, and it goes on. And then later on in, in Luke chapter 9, there's even some of them that get to be a, a, a participant in the transfiguration of Jesus. Wow, what a, what a time to be a disciple. Talk about pyrotechnics. I mean, wow, fantastic. It was great. If you jump forward to Luke chapter 10, it even gets better because at the beginning of verse number 1 of Luke chapter 10, it's no longer just 12 going out and doing these things. Jesus now commissions 70, some even say possibly 72, but at least 70 to go out into all of the world. Now, why the 70? Well, some believe it might have been because Moses had 70 elders to help him in his cause. Some believe it might because there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. Some might believe because at that time, historians believe that there were 70 known countries in the world. And maybe Jesus sent out these, uh, these groups out to meet all those needs around the world. We don't know. But 9 starts out great. Chapter 10 starts out great. But boy, you get down to about verse number 45 and there's a little bit of a challenge that begins to take place among the disciples. And Jesus begins to show them four different lessons that are very important in the area of discipleship. <laughs> I, I learned it quite a bit the other day. Some of you might know that I'm among the things that I, I do, I, I always, I work with multiple groups and multiple activities and multiple ministries. And right now, among all the other things I'm doing, I, I serve as a, a, a director of a national organization or national association and, and with world implications. It's a, it's a great organization. And and um, I had been using my own car. In fact, I had been renting a car to kind of help them out, actually, for several months. And they decided that they wanted to uh, purchase a car that would not be mine, but it would be mine to use. And, it's, and, and, and they gave me the dollar amount. And they said, you go out and get the nicest car you want to, all the way up to this amount. And, well, I took them at their word. And, and uh, I, I, it's not my car, but I get to drive it for the next couple years. And it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice car. It's brand new. And, and it's, it's got everything on it that you want. I mean, you back up and you, you see, and, it, and the car knows when Pastor Merrill's standing behind me and it starts beeping. How does it know when Pastor Merrill's there and so I don't back over him? I don't know. It, it, it's got all kinds of bells and whistles. And, and, it, and, 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 and it's got one of these, of course, one of these electric starters, you know. You don't even have to be in the car, you know, to start it. Just like Pastor Merrill's car. He, he's got one of those starters, too. And... And, and so I had been doing a fly around. I had been traveling around quite a bit uh, for the last uh, few weeks. And I came home and I went out to, to start the car and it didn't start. Just downright didn't start. I wasn't alarmed because maybe I pressed the wrong button. Well, I opened up the, 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 the door of the car and the interior light didn't come on. It always comes on to welcome me and say, hello, Harry, you know, kind of. Makes me that warm and fuzzy. It's got that ambient lighting, they call it, on the inside. And, and nothing happened. Well, I've got this, so I pressed it. Nothing happened. I pressed it several other times. Nothing. I got out, walked around. Nothing happened. I mean, there wasn't a light that would come on. There wasn't a horn that would honk. I mean, it was beautifully sitting there doing nothing. And you know what? There are times in our life, even as disciples, if we're not careful, we may be all dressed up, but we ain't doing nothing like we could be. And now as we look into the 21st century and as we look at, as we look at where I believe God is positioning our church for, what I really do believe to be a phenomenal tomorrow, we've got to be ready for it. And sometimes when he wants to send us out, we don't have anything to be sent out with. Well, I thought, no problem. 
I'll look at the manual. I'll look at the manual because look at this. This is the manual to my car. Look at this. It's twice as big as my Bible. There is more stuff in here than, than in the pages. And, and I thought, well, no problem. I'll just, I'll look at my manual. However, then I remembered that my manual's in the trunk. And of course, it's a power trunk. So in order to get into the trunk, to get the manual, you press the button, but there's no power and my manual's held captive. Donna's now standing at the door of the garage, her little white Jetta parked next to mine. And she humbly says, what? No power, huh? <laughs> of course, no sarcasm, not at all. What? And so I have to ask my wife, if I can borrow the keys to her little white Jetta so I can go down to the auto parts store because all I can think about is there's no power. So I, I go down to the auto parts store and I, I, I humbly have to find out about this. Well, and then, and then I, you know, I'm thinking, I'm going to have to jump this car maybe. So I get this, I get this cord and, you know, I, it's been decades since I used one of these things. So much so I, where does what go where? And, and then I wonder, well, I got to get one that's long enough. So I get this thing and, and my, look at this thing. I mean, it's, it's 12 foot long. Because I thought, man, I got to make sure I, I, I can get the power to where it needs to go. So I get this thing that's 12 foot. And then he says to me, you know, the longer the cable... And the farther away from the source of the power, it affects the quality of the charge. Oh, I don't want to get too far from God. I don't want to get too far and get overextended that, that even though I can rely on Him for a charge, the farther I position my life away from the power source, ooh, it might affect how much I really have available to me. Long story short, I, uh, my wife's out there monitoring this whole thing, and, and of course, her Jetta turns on, that little car. And, and I'm thinking, does that little car have enough power for my big car? And she says, any power is more than what you've got right now. <laughs> Long story short, just a little juice, and that baby started up. So, of course, I called the dealer. And I said, what's wrong with this? He said, listen, how long ago was it that you drove the car? I said, well, X number of days. He said, listen, you've got all of these computers in this car. You've got the thing that makes the screen go up. You've got the thing that makes sure that you don't run over Pastor Merrill when you're backing up. It's got the, he said, you've got all of these little things and all these computers, are, are, they're, they're all pulling on this, on this battery all the time. And he said, unless you keep it charged up by running once in a while, it just goes flat. Wow. I wanted to go in and disconnect every computer in that car. I want to go back and get on a riding lawnmower. I want to get on anything. Then I, as I look at this passage with you, all of these great things that's happening there in the first part of chapter 9, all these things are about to happen in chapter 10, but then in verses 45 through 62, it seems like the disciples are in a valley and there's a power drain. Can we go over the four things that I believe these four little vignettes talk to us about tonight? Because I really believe that as God brings our church to the edge of its great horizon and its edge of its tomorrow. Now, please, it's not like God isn't doing good things now. I know he is. But don't you feel just this deep down anticipation that something good is about to happen around here like never before? Wow, I feel that way. But just about the time I want to get into the car, I want to make sure that there's power. 
Just about the time when I really believe that God wants us to be someplace and go. I want to make sure that my life as a disciple and our life as a congregation made up of disciples, that we're ever ready and charged up and able to perform what God wants us to do in order to proclaim the kingdom of God throughout this area. Verses 46 through 48 is the story of what I would view as four contributors to the decline of spiritual power in a discipleship team. Because there are things that drain spiritual power among disciples. And we cannot allow these things to happen to us as we move forward. We're at a point where never before in the history of the world does the world evermore need the message of the kingdom like now. This is the moment where the world is poised for pure kingdom message. We're at that moment. And as a, as a collaborative group of people, as the hundreds of people who gather here, we've got to make sure that there isn't any one of these four things that will drain the spiritual power of our discipleship capabilities. Number one, verse 46, and suddenly an argument began to arise among the disciples. And they began to determine which one of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, he took a child and stood that child in their midst and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives him who sent me, for he who is the least among you, this is the one who's going to be the greatest. Danger number one. Let's make certain that as we move forward as spiritual disciples and as a congregation, into the grand tomorrow of what God has in mind, let's make certain that we're aware of what I call the competitive component that can drain us of spiritual energy. The competitive component. Because in the midst of all of these miracles, in the midst of people coming to God, in the midst of signs and wonders, in the midst of thousands being fed, in the midst of all kinds of things taking place, they began to talk among themselves. Well, I wonder among the 12 of us, which one of us is really the greatest of all disciples? Who prays the most? Who's got that, that opportunity to just blow on people and they fall over? Who's the one that's got that ability to declare things? Who's, got, who's the greatest? Please tell us who's the greatest. And we've got to be so certain that as we move forward as spiritual leaders and disciples, whether we're working in the nursery, whether they're in, whether they're in part of the prayer team, whether you're here part praying in the, on Saturday mornings, whether you're, you're part of the, the, the men of valor, if you're part of all of these different activities, it doesn't matter what part of the ministry you're in. Let's make certain that a competitive spirit among us as disciples never surface. No room for competition. No room for the competition component. No one, please, let's avoid the trap of trying to determine who among us is the better among us. Because Jesus is trying to point out that it's not about prestige. It's not about prominence. It's not about position. No, it's none of those things. In fact, Jesus takes a little child... And he brings this little child and he brings this child and he has this child placed in their midst. This child who is absolutely helpless, this child who is powerless, this child who can't really do very much on its own, this child who has no position, this child who absolutely is dependent upon somebody else. And Jesus places this little child in their midst. And, and, and Jesus basically says, whoever acknowledges this child is going to be acknowledging me. I think the only thing worse about than a child trying to act like an adult is an adult who acts like a child. And I think sometimes we fail to realize that some of the actions and some of our thinking, we, we, we sometimes don't know the difference between being childlike and being childish. I think the principle in verse 46 and 48 is this. You become great by accepting and not by asserting. 
If we're going to be great disciples, if we're going to be effective disciples, we need to find the most helpless and defenseless and the most vulnerable in our midst. And let's be the most accepting of all congregations. Let's be in a group that's accepting of people who have needs and who are vulnerable. And without you and I bringing them the message of the kingdom of God, they're lost. And we're going to be continuing to be an effective ministry if we are a ministry that accepts people rather than asserts position. Let's be people who know how to accept and not people who practice on how to assert. Then verse 49, it goes on and says, and John said to, to Jesus, he said, Master, the other day while we were out doing the kingdom work, we saw somebody else casting out demons in your name. We tried to hinder him. Now notice this phrase in verse number 48. Because he does not follow us. I would like to suggest that God wants to be sure that we don't get into what I'll call number two, parochial positioning. Parochial positioning. I think what's going to make our church stand out in the kingdom of God and in this neighborhood isn't the opportunity for us to become parochial, but for us to be collaborative, for us to be complementary. In other words, we don't want to get into a position where we say, oh, they don't follow us. No, you see, here were these other people. They were, they were doing the same kinds of things, different demonstrations, but they all had the same intentions. I believe Jesus is wanting to remind all of us that as God builds this local assembly, that God is a God of diversity and not a God of isolation. In other words, what the Lord has been speaking to my heart is very strong like this. We don't have an exclusive franchise on the kingdom of God. One of the things that's going to make our congregation great as it moves forward is how many other congregations we pray for. What's going to continue to allow the blessings and the anointing and the favor of God to be upon what we do to proclaim the kingdom of God is every time you drive by another Bible-believing, kingdom-building congregation, you just pause and say, in the name of Jesus, Father, bless the activities of that ministry. Hallelujah. Oh, God, do whatever you can do. This last week, we were in a minister's conference and there were hundreds of ministers there, and they came around the altars. And one of the great joys we had was to be able to pray for men and women, missionaries from around the world, and people doing all kinds of things. And what was so powerful is that it wasn't parochial. It was a releasing spirit where, God, bring your blessings upon all of these men and women in the name of Christ. Because one of the worst things that could hinder the kingdom of God moving in our own midst is to believe that the kingdom of God only moves in our own midst. Wow. I don't think so. The other day I had the joy of watching a little boy pray for somebody. I was at another church ministering and I saw another little boy who I found out was seven years old and he was praying and he was praying for somebody who had been at the altar of this church. I gave the altar call. A number of people came forward and this little seven-year-old came and he stood behind them praying for people and I thought, wow, God, answer his prayers. Hallelujah. God, anoint his faith. Praise the Lord. Wow. Don't we want to be that same way? Where again, we release people and understand that again, the only one that has a franchise in the kingdom of God is the king who has the kingdom, Jesus Christ. And our joy can come as we move forward as disciples by blessing ministries and touching them. That's why... It, that's why we support so many ministries. That's why we have so many missionaries that we give to. That's why well over 10% of all of our income, and I'm talking about well over 10%, well over 10% of everything that comes into this ministry, Pastor Darrell releases to other ministries around the world because we don't have a niche on God. God uses so many different ministries. Hallelujah. And it blesses us when we see God blessing other ministries in the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. I, 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 I don't get to see Franklin Graham too often. In fact, I've only met him once. And that, that was by divine appointment. 
But I don't get to see him every week, but I, get to, I can pray for him every week, right? I, I, I may not get to see, I may not get to see uh, uh, some of the other great ministries. I may not get to know them personally, but I can pray that God's kingdom will is going to be done in their life. Wow. Number three, let's look at verse 51. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers out and he, that he wanted to go into the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him. And when the disciples, James and John, saw that they were not receiving the messengers of Jesus Christ, they came to Jesus in verse 54 and said, Lord, do you want us to command uh, electricity? Do you want us to command thunderbolts? Can we send lightning down? And God, can we barbecue those guys? Now, don't raise your hand, but just hit the person's knee next to you is there anybody that you've ever wanted to kind of uh, burn? <laughs> you know, I mean, is there anybody that you would like to say, oh God, just give me the permission, just once to pr provide a little sizzle in their life, right? <laughs> oh, and you see, these were Samaritans who, of course, because of long-standing conflicts and all kinds of spiritual and social and all kinds of things that go back hundreds of years. These people just did not like Jews and, and uh, conversely Jews didn't like them but Jesus was willing to go into their villages and give them life but what the disciples were facing is what I'll call number three the poison of prejudice. The poison of prejudice. Because these, these disciples, wonderful men of God, these were the same kind of men that were up there in the transfiguration of Jesus. They were the same people who were helping to deliver bread just a few days earlier. These were the same people who were casting out devils and, and laying hands on the sick. And now they were saying, Jesus, because they don't like us, we don't have to like them. Burn, baby, burn. <laughs> oh, the poison of prejudice. And then it hit me the other day as I was reading this passage. You, I wrote this line down. You don't have to, but it struck my heart that there are a lot of people that we look at, but we never really see. Have you been to a Walmart lately? Been to an airport terminal? Have you been on an expressway? Have you been caught in a traffic jam? Have you been tempted to honk at the car in front of you because they haven't moved as fast as you would like? In other words, do we, do we look at people on an ongoing basis? Do we look at them, but do we really see them? So I believe the Holy Spirit, to the disciples, Jesus, I think, was suggesting this. Strive for a love-filled environment. And I really know that in the next several weeks and months, in the next couple years, I believe that God is going to just be bringing in all kinds of individuals to our congregation. Some are going to be just like this. Read, read when you have a chance, Matthew 9.36. Let me read it for you, Matthew 9.36. And Jesus, seeing the multitudes, felt compassion for them because they were distressed, downcast, and dispersed because they didn't have a shepherd. Now look at this, Jesus seeing the multitudes. How often I look at crowds, and how often I look at multitudes of people, but I look at them without really seeing them. But I think this little passage verifies to me the spiritual truth that every time Jesus felt compassion on people, he did something. Every time Jesus felt compassion on people, he did something. Notice what Matthew 9.36 again said, and Jesus seeing the multitudes. He just didn't look at them. 
he saw them. He looked deeper, and he saw those that were discouraged. He saw those that were despondent. He saw some that were distressed. He saw them that were dispersed because they didn't have any spiritual leaders. He looked beyond the mass of humanity and saw the needs of people. And whenever Jesus saw the needs, he was moved by compassion. And whenever he was moved by compassion, he did something. Hallelujah. Wow. Now, I don't know where this is all going to go. But we have ministries here to the imprisoned. We have ministries to, to the children. A couple times a year, this place just makes goodwill jealous. We are an absolute heart-beating Salvation Army store a couple times a year. Except everything is free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And when that opportunity comes and people can come to get children's clothing, do you know what? Have you ever looked at them? Have you really seen the people who come? Have you seen them? I've had occasion to, and I see them coming in some of the cars that, that in, the, in my old day, they, they were held together with gum. They had to borrow themselves opportunities. They've had to put together enough money to get a taxi to come here. Then there are others that are coming in nice cars. There are all kinds of people who from all kinds of background come here. And I say, Lord Jesus, let them come. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No prejudice here. Help us look beyond the multitude and see the need of the people that are discouraged, that are depressed, that are dispersed, that are broken. And I tell you, I tell you, I feel within my spirit that as the word begins to leak out, that this ministry is a ministry that receives people regardless of color diversity, regardless of economic advantage, regardless of educational prowessness, regardless of financial positioning, that Christian life is a place of love and life and liberty. Hallelujah. Oh, we're going we're gonna to continue to see multitudes come. But what will make us effective is not because we see the multitudes, it will be because we see the people. We'll see their hurt. We'll hold their hand. We'll heal them by the use of the name of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something. One of those kids that you hear, one of those kids that you help, might be a kid by the name of Harry Schmidt at the age of 12 who comes to know Jesus Christ from a very desperate poor, impoverished background. And it was because a little church in Iowa reached out and came and brought us a little bit of help. I found the greatest help in all the world, Jesus Christ. But what if they hadn't looked beyond who we are? And what if they hadn't seen our real need? So who knows in the next few weeks and the next few months and the next few years, as the multitudes in the suburban areas, and not only this suburban area, but the Chicagoland region, and around the world, because every Sunday and every week, hundreds and thousands of people are hearing the Word of God from this ministry. Hallelujah. Red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, and people alike. May we be people who, by the heart of God, as Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12 says, May this be a church that puts on the heart of compassion. And may we not isolate ourselves from these folks, but may we infiltrate society because of the love of God. Finally, verse 51, Jesus, the Bible tells us, is, a, is making his way, of course, into Jerusalem. And he goes and tries to make his effort through Samaria. We understand that moment, but as we conclude with verse 57, Jesus begins to talk about one other component that can cause a drainage of anointing on discipleship. And it's what I'll refer to as the dilemma of discipline. Read with me verse 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. 
as long as it's to a Hyatt. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds have air, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he says to another, follow me. And he said, well, well, please permit me to first go home and bury my father, who they don't actually believe that this person was even dead. But Jesus said, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another one said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye. Notice three times there was almost this whole concept, at least twice you get the phrase, but first, but first. I want to follow you, Jesus, but first, but first. You see, discipleship really comes down to the crux of this issue. Who really comes first in our life? Who really comes first in our heart? Because every one of us from time to time will face this, what I call this dilemma of discipline. Because if you're a disciple, listen folks, being a disciple requires that you and I must also experience and exercise discipline. And I think there are two different types of discipline, at least that are referred to here. One is what I call the recreational or vocational Priority, and the other one is what I would call the relational priority. One might deal with hardship, and the other one deals with kinship. Because Jesus was saying to them, if you're truly going to follow me, uh, you've got to understand that, that a disciple means that you're disciplined, and, and, and that it's, it's, it's not just a recreational life, it's a vocational calling. You are a disciple 24-7. Oh, I can feel the amens jumping out right now. In other words, when you sign up to be a disciple, you, 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 you don't ask this question, how many weeks of vacation do I get? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. You're never on vacation if you're a disciple. Now, you rest in him and you find your rest in him, but you're never off the clock. You're never able to chink out. You're never able to punch out and say, oh, I got four weeks where I no longer have to be a disciple. I can release myself from the discipline of following the kingdom of God. And Jesus said, no way. There's no recreational priorities. There's no recreational or vocational opportunities. Listen, if you're a disciple, you are definitely going to experience some things where there's sometimes what you would feel to be very little fringe benefits. Lots of times you're going to be absent of creature comforts and, and there are no vacations. Wow, but I know you've heard this, but the, but, but the retirement benefits are great. Well, I want to tell you something. You know as well as I know that once you know Jesus Christ, you begin to experience real benefit long before you ever retire in God. Amen? Hallelujah. How many are better off tonight because you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? How many are better off tonight because you're a disciple? Hallelujah. And sure, you're going to get an unexpected phone call. Sure, somebody's going to interrupt your schedule. Sure, somebody's going to come across your path that's going to smell bad, look bad, act bad, and everything else. But you're the same way in without Jesus Christ in your life. Amen. And we do experience what would be referred to as a relational priority. And that deals with our kinship. Jesus never has ever called us to reject our family. But he always calls us to identify who comes really first in our family. Who comes really first in our family. And so I am as excited as a person can be about the ministry future of our congregation. I see so many great things in place. Again, I've been around not as long as Moses over here. I mean, Pastor Merrill Sr. I, I, I've not been around as long as him. But I tell you something. I've been around to see wave after wave after wave. And I tell you, we've been riding some good little waves, but a big one's about to come. And I don't want us to just look good. And at the time when we need to have the power present, it's not. Because, first of all, we put the handbook in the trunk when it really ought to be as close to the front seat of our life as possible. The 
Maggie was in the nursing home. So was George. True story. Maggie loved God. She didn't know whether George did or not. They were both in the same nursing home. Maggie noticed George when he came in. He had just lost his wife. He had been placed there by other members of his family because they didn't know what to do with George. So they placed him in a home. Maggie spotted him. She was already there. George was the kind of person, because of the loss of his wife, he kind of became inward. He would eat, and he would come to the table, and, but quickly retreat to his room. And day after day, and day after day, George would look out the window of his room in the nursing home and became so reclusive that although he obeyed the rules and although he did what he was asked to do, he never spoke to anybody. He drew in, sat all day long in front of that window looking out, not saying a word. Maggie had lost her loved one too, but really knew a greater loved one. And so one day, she was walking by and saw George looking out the window. Said, hi, George. Not a word. Next day, walked by. Hi, George. Not a word. Well, she thought about something that she'd been wanting to do forever. She, she always wanted to learn how to quilt. Never done one before. But thought, you know what? I think I'm going to take up quilting. So every day... For several months, she went into George's room and just began talking to George. With her Bible, she would read to George, making her quilt, sewing the different pieces, taking the different blockings and sewing them together. She just talked and talked. She talked as if her own husband was there, although he wasn't. She just talked and talked, and for days and weeks and months, she went in every day and talked to George. George never said a word in response. Always looked out the window. She'd read the word, talk about Jesus, talk about God, talk about stories, talk about life, talk about people, talk, talk, talk. She just, she just talked. George never responded. After several months, the quilt was finished. People were so excited to see this quilt, the first quilt she'd ever made, that they actually put it on display. And the same week that it was put on display, for everybody to see, that same week George died. Well, as they were unceremoniously taking George's few possessions out of that room, they opened up a nightstand, and in this nightstand was a little note. And they brought the note to Maggie, and the note said, Tell Maggie I love her and her Lord. Wow. Maggie took that quilt, and when George was buried, they wrapped the quilt around George and laid him in the casket. You never know when you and I are going to encounter a George. Resistive, on the surface, but longing and hurting on the inside. And sometimes you do the same thing day after day. You show up as a disciple, and you're there. And you're there. Nine to five, you go to the same job, and you're there. And you're there. The best way to lead people to Christ is to be a Christian in front of those people day in and day out. And one day, and you may or may never know, but the words that you say, the life that you lead as a disciple, 
that opportunity to just show up without prestige, position, and power. The opportunity just to declare the word of God and the hope of God and that Jesus Christ is the light of the world might cause a George in his own quiet, silent way to come to know Jesus Christ. So, as I pray and ask God's blessing upon you as pastor comes, may I just say to you that some of the great work that's going to continue to be done in our assembly will no doubt be done by people who will not be noticed. and You'll be doing it day in and day out as you come in here and you go to the boiler room and you fold clothing and you're out there and you're helping men and you're out there working with the children and you're in the nursery and you're in here doing works of service and you're out there every day 24-7 as a disciple. But at that one moment when somebody else's battery runs dry, you're going to have the power to get them back on the road and keep them going. Let's stand together in the name of the Lord. Father, thank you for the moment. Thank you for these wonderful people. Thank you for this uh, kingdom call upon this house. Not many mighty are called, not many wise, and certainly not the wealthy often. But it's just everyday people who themselves at one time or another might have been discouraged, might have been beaten down, might have been somewhat without any sense of direction, like without a shepherd. And all of a sudden you came and you wrapped your arms of love around us, just like Maggie's quilt. So in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, oh God, may I just encourage this wonderful congregation to stay in touch with Jesus. Look deep into the needs of people. Bless those who are in the kingdom work around us. And always stay alert for the prompting of the Holy Spirit to speak to our heart. To lead us to the George of our life. Thank you for the Maggies. Thank you for the Georges. Thank you for Christian life. Thank you for your calling. In Jesus' name, amen.